In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Why Democrats think the Kansas abortion vote is a game-changer. We can act. This is not done. It is cruel. It is the law, but that law can be overturned with the right governor, with the right legislators, and with the people of Georgia standing up saying, we want better. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the podcast we want you to depend on for the most on-the-ground coverage of the 2022 election. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein. Uh, Patricia Murphy, our other host, is taking a break this week, so I'm happy to be joined once again by former once and future political insider Tamar Hallerman, who is now a senior reporter at the AJC, who's also one of the hosts of the award-winning, nationally renowned Breakdown podcast. Tamar, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me back, Greg. It's been a blast getting to co-host with you. You passed the test. (laughs) (laughs) If you're just (laughs) listening to us for the first time, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Coming up later, we're going to talk about how Governor Kemp is pushing back on Democrats who want to swipe business from the state because of Republican policies. But first, let's dive into one of the most uh, surprising political developments this week, which was the resounding vote in Kansas against an effort to eliminate abortion protections from that state's constitution. And Tamar, this caught a lot of folks by surprise. It was designed by Republicans to be on a very heavy turnout day, the same day as as the primary vote. Um, it was looked at by conservative anti-abortion activists as a as what could be an easy win, and instead it lost by double digits. And it's emboldened. Democrats here who say that this could just be an inkling of what we see in the November midterms, the things, you know, stuff that isn't showing up in the polls, the sort of electoral surge that we could be seeing in Georgia. Yeah. And the the important timing of this is this is the first vote, the first opportunity that the public has really had to weigh in on the Supreme Court's ruling in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Healthcare, their decision to ultimately overturn Roe versus Wade and leave abortion up to the states. So it was a very high stakes moment. And especially in a state as ruby red as Kansas, I think a lot of folks were surprised. At the end of the day, I think there was an 18 point difference or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was surprising. And I think what's what's so interesting now is is just in terms of rhetoric, how the parties have seemingly shifted. You know, for so many years, you know, Republicans were on the offense on abortion. They were trying to message, trying to get folks back on their side. And, you know, Democrats were very much on the defense, or at least abortion rights supporters were. This time around, now that 
the Supreme Court has left this up to the states. Democrats, for the first time in 50 years, are, are now on the offense. They don't really have anything to lose. And it's been interesting to kind of look at the language that they were using in this campaign in Kansas. They're using terms that are much more popular to see among Republican and conservative campaigns, where they talk about things like government overreach, government mandates, personal freedom. And just to see how effective that was, I think it's something that we're going to see repeated in other states in the weeks, months, and years ahead. Yeah, and this was a, a ruling, a, a vote, I should say, welcomed by Democrats, to say the least, and kind of papered over by Republicans who did not want to talk about it. They want to focus on the economy, the economy, the economy, high gas prices, high inflation, Joe Biden, Joe Biden, Joe Biden. I asked Stacey Abrams, though, if this could portend a electoral change that the pundits, the polls just aren't picking up on. Here's what she said. I think polling is a snapshot. But what we know is that as more and more women understand what is happening, as more and more women face the reality of this law, we will see more and more women turn out. But we will also see those who have given priority to the economy recognize that economic changes will happen. But if this law remains the law of the land, what it, what it predicts and what it will do to the women in the state for generations is untenable. And so I'm not going to predict how many people will turn out, but I will say that the more people understand, the more we see a shift towards making the change necessary to ensure that Brian Kemp is out of office and that I become the next governor of Georgia. Tomorrow, that was her way of kind of saying the economy rises, it falls, but laws like this one, attempts in Kansas to strip abortion protections and laws like the anti-abortion law in Georgia, they're more permanent. And it takes an electoral change to undo that. This has been part of her argument all along. Look, we've talked about the polls that show abortion is a very important issue to so many voters, but it's not the top issue. At the same time, though, there's been a lot of analysis about what happened in Kansas, a reliably Republican state, that showed that even for voters who still viewed high inflation as, as their top issue, they still came out in force to preserve abortion rights in that state. And there's so much we don't know about how the electorate will shape out, how turnout will be affected by this Supreme Court ruling that overturned a part of our sort of a legal framework for basically a half century. And Stacey Abrams is making the bet that we might not be picking up on the trends that, that her campaign is relying on. It's worth noting, and I think sometimes when it comes to abortion, we talk about how the Republican Party in general is really opposed to abortion, or at least want many more restrictions, and Democrats are much more likely to be pro-choice. They, they want to preserve abortion access. But I think this vote in Kansas has proved that that's not true. It's not necessarily black and white, especially when it comes to Republican and independent voters. And I think that's what Republicans in Kansas were really, you know, who wanted to strip away abortion protections. They were really counting on it being this kind of black and white issue for Republicans. And I think especially with independents and even with kind of more moderates in the Kansas suburbs like around Wichita, around Kansas City and places like Overland Park, it showed that they did not want to strip away all of these abortion protections. And I think that's something that Democrats in states like Georgia are really going to grasp onto. And actually, there was a memo that Lauren Gro Wargo, um, Stacey Abrams' campaign manager and close confidant put out in Georgia that kind of summarized that recently, how they 
how she sees it, that most independents are pro-choice, that there's a block of Georgia Republicans who don't want to ban abortions. And not only that, but for the first time in decades, abortion is much more of a mobilizing issue for Democrats than it was for Republicans. For so long, because Republicans were on offense, because they wanted to see more bans in place, they wanted to see this illegal, they were the ones really energized around this issue. Democrats, I think a lot of folks kind of took it for granted that abortion was the law of the land and it would be protected. So now folks are really fired up. And so they're they're going to be counting on that looking ahead to November. Yeah, I think in Kansas, uh, some of the analysis I read at least was that supporters of this effort to eliminate abortion rights protections in the state constitution expected a more typical primary crowd, a primary electorate, rather than a bigger surge of voters that we saw. Because in the AJC, our polls showed that a broad majority of voters across party lines, they oppose the Supreme Court ruling striking down Roe v. Wade. But when you get to a primary electorate, and that's the difference here, right? When you get the Republican primary electorate, voters who show up at those lower turnout affairs tend to be much more uh, supportive of anti-abortion restrictions. And that's what's shaped the, the state Republican Party over the years. That's why we're seeing candidates who used to steer clear of any talk about outright abortion bans now embracing it. Every candidate running for U.S. Senate on the Republican side, including Herschel Walker, each of them said at a debate, um, well, Herschel Walker wasn't at the debate, but each of them indicated that they would support banning abortion 100%, even in cases of rape and incest and when the life of the mother is at stake. And that's a position we saw with lieutenant governor candidates, down ticket candidates. Even Brian Kemp said he personally supports a more restrictive abortion law than what he signed back in 2019. So we're seeing the primaries push the candidates for the right even as our polls and other polls and other data indicate that the electorate, when it comes to the American public, when it comes to this issue, is much more down the line, is much more supportive of preserving at least some abortion rights. Yeah, it does get really iffy, though, once you start talking about specifics, when you would like to see restrictions and bans put in place. Are we talking about the second or third trimester? Are we talking about six weeks? Are we talking about you know, a, a medical abortion? Or are you talking more about pills? It gets really hard when you start splitting hairs. And I think that's where sometimes the parties struggle to kind of match exactly where the public is. And it's so hard because it, it really does vary so much person to person. Um, looking ahead to November, obviously, this is a very energizing moment for Democrats. I expect we're going to see folks in many states try to push for similar referendums for things like constitutional amendments. And I think why they succeeded here is because this was a true up or down vote over this single issue. It's going to get much more complicated when we look ahead to November, though, not only because there's going to be several months between when the Supreme Court decision came out and when voters go to the polls, voters have short memories. We we know this. But also, we're looking at candidates who who are messaging not only on abortion, but every issue under the sun. We're talking about inflation, gas prices, basically a referendum on the Joe Biden presidency and Democratic leadership in Washington. We're, of course, talking about health care. We are talking about abortion, too, but it's not just this one issue. And so I think Republicans are banking on the fact that folks are still going to be fed up with the Biden administration, that uh, people are going to be nervous about the economic situation, about you know, being able to pay their bills and that they're going to overlook this abortion stuff in favor of rebuking the Democratic policies in Washington today. I'm really glad you mentioned that because the latest Republican target is on the massive 
federal climate healthcare tax bill. It doesn't really have a great name yet other than the name, what is it, the Reducing Inflation Act, whatever the Democrats in Congress are calling it. But that has been the latest target of Republicans who have really quickly shifted their attacks to that. Herschel Walker, I just now, I'm sitting in my car in Alpharetta. I just left a press conference with Herschel Walker over Milton, where he was focusing his attack on that bill saying that it would end up raising taxes you know, down the line to American taxpayers. Governor Kemp, he made the same argument earlier the same day up in Tacoma. I've been all over the state, but this is what he said up in the foothills of the North Georgia mountains. They're going to hurt manufacturers. We've been working for a decade in Georgia to bring manufacturing back. The people not remember back during the pandemic when we are literally being monopolized by China and everybody said, we got to move manufacturing back to Georgia, back to the United States. We have to onshore. And that's what we've been doing. And they're trying to destroy that. Take it tomorrow. This was basically a response to a question that I asked about abortion, about the potential of losing business because of his stance on anti-abortion restrictions and guns and the like that we'll talk about in the second half of the show. But that exemplifies an effort to me that we've heard over and over again to just pivot every time you can back to Joe Biden, the economy. And to Republicans, they're seizing on this massive bill this landmark, this cornerstone of President Biden's domestic agenda. So this is something that Democrats are very excited about. But Republicans are also turning it into something that they can energize and mobilize their voters to to oppose. Absolutely. If you're a Republican, this is a really easy thing to vote against. We're talking about a package with a price tag of hundreds of billions of dollars. You know, Democrats are saying a lot will be offset because of the tax portion of the bill. Uh, we still don't have the greatest idea of what's in it yet because the way Capitol Hill works is often these deals get negotiated late at night in the leadership suites of Senate and House leaders. We don't see it until a day or two before it's stuck on the House or Senate floor for a big vote. So even if you, you, know, you were sitting there all night trying to read every page, you wouldn't have time to read the whole thing before you're being asked to, to vote on something. So it's easy to rail against, you know, obviously this is kind of the bill to try and salvage what used to be called the Build Back Better plan, Joe Biden's domestic agenda. And so I think Democrats are happy to have something to hang their hat on, even if it wasn't the full package that they were hoping to get. But I'm sure there's going to be a lot of frustration too, because it was really two people, Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin, negotiating this thing. But you're absolutely right, Greg. For Republicans, it's so easy, especially when you talk about all of the tax incentives for greener energy sources, phasing out fossil fuels, allowing the federal government to help negotiate some drug prices, big changes to the tax code, plenty of things to rail against for them. And they're going to make sure Democrats like Raphael Warnock or any Democrat um, is going to be forced to answer for that package. And plenty for Democrats to hang their hats on. And we're expecting Senator Warnock to try to include legislation, a provision in the legislation that would cap the price of insulin, that would curb prescription drug prices. So there's plenty for both parties to seize upon. But, you know, that just sort of reflects our polarized electorate right now and, and the fight for the uh, either to mobilize your base or scrap over the few independents, the few middle of the road, the few undecided voters still left. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. 
Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, and your other host, Patricia Murphy, is out on vacation. So she is being ably replaced for the show by Tamar Hallerman, senior AJC reporter and once in future political insider. We'll always keep that title. Tamar, how you been? Oh, well, I am so honored that I would, you know, that, that you would let me sit in for Patricia. Uh, it's definitely not an easy job, but it is always su- such a blast to be here for this podcast. Well, you still sound like you are, in, you know, deep in the Washington politics, like your old beat as the Washington correspondent. Even though you are firmly away from Washington, in the heart of Atlanta now, I am sitting in a car as I usually am. This time I'm in downtown Alpharetta. Last show I was somewhere else. I can't remember, but that's that time of the year on the campaign trail because we were everywhere on the campaign trail, catching up with the candidates and not just the top races, but really. Every race conceivable, and I've seen three of the four in the last two days. So um, I, I, I love that I'm able to f- tape the podcast from the road, and we love that so many of our listeners are also subscribers to the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join our community this moment by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. And your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. So you always know what's really going on. And we really love hearing from our listeners. I was at a bar in Decatur the other day and one of our great listeners came up and recognized my voice as I was ordering a Guinness and said he loved the Politically Georgia podcast. It's really become such a fun part of our jobs, this new way to tell our listeners what's going on in state politics. And tomorrow, one of the big things going on right now, something I've really never seen to this scale, is now we've had our fourth Democratic governor make a very, not just a plea, not just lobbying for investment, new investment, but making a very aggressive and public plea for Georgia businesses and Georgia investments to move to their states in the middle of a governor's race. We've had the governor of New Jersey, Phil Murphy, write to seven corporations with deep roots in Georgia saying, hey, move to New Jersey where we have more abortion rights protections for your employees. We've had two governors, the governor of North Carolina and the governor of Nevada, both saying if Music Midtown can't set up shop in Georgia because of its gun legislation, we're happy to have them come to our states. And then to top it all off, Governor Gavin Newsom of California took out full page ads and newspapers across the West urging Hollywood film executives to basically divest from Georgia because of its anti-abortion laws and to stay home, to stay in California where they have abortion protections written in to their codes. So tomorrow, I don't know. I mean, we've definitely seen sparring between governors over car plants and things like that, but it seems to be reaching a new level in Georgia right before the November midterm. 
Yeah, I feel like it's become relatively common to see like a sassy tweet here and there whenever there's a political firestorm, usually over conservative legislation or something that's been passed in Georgia. You know, something sassy from a Democratic governor saying, hey, you know, we'd love this sporting event or, hey, come look at my state for your company. But it's almost kind of a joke or it kind of it feels that way. But this is different. It almost, you know, at first feels like a little bit of a pylon, but then you start looking at kind of the serious lobbying efforts that that are starting to go into this. People are starting to spend money to pay for ads and staff time to write these letters to folks. And obviously, they know that there are certain voters, certain workers who are pro-choice, who are nervous about what's going to happen um, you know, in this post-Roe abortion landscape. And you know, maybe they're, they're thinking that they can capitalize on that. Of course, when it comes to moving a business, there's a ton of considerations that have to go into it, not just abortion, but it certainly is an interesting kind of moment that we're in. I mean, I wonder if there could be perhaps something negative coming out from all of this in that these are Democratic governors. I'm assuming they like Stacey Abrams, as many Democrats do. And I'm assuming they want to see her become governor of Georgia, because why not? If you're a Democratic governor, you want people who reflect your politics in other states as well. Could this potentially hurt Stacey Abrams if Republicans can use this as a way to kind of pummel her and other Democrats for perhaps encouraging businesses to leave the state, even if that's not what she's saying. I mean, they still hammered her for, you know, quote, wanting the MLB All-Star game to leave Georgia, even though that's not what she said in the aftermath of the election bill being passed. You know, she's going to be held responsible for this by Republicans. And at some point, does this start hurting Stacey Abrams and the Democratic ticket if this keeps going on? You're right. This is tricky terrain for Democrats. And we saw that not with the All-Star game, but also doing the effort in 2019, the boycott threats from Alyssa Milano and all sorts of Hollywood executives to leave Georgia doing the debate over the anti-abortion legislation. And in the end, Stacey Abrams ended up flying out to Hollywood and meeting with film executives and film producers and saying, hey, don't leave the state, fight back in different ways. Fight back by investing in in Georgia, investing in democratic policies, investing in in her group, Fair Fight Action, at the time, the, the voting rights and political organization that she founded. So that was one of the responses. Now, I asked Governor Kemp about this. He didn't take that route. He didn't take that um that angle that you know, why would Democrats want, why would Stacey Abrams agree with other Democrats who want to divest from Georgia? Instead, here's what he said. You check the gas prices in those states lately. I mean, from an economic perspective, we've got a big announcement we're doing today on a new project down in Columbus. We've had two years in a row of economic success, two record years in a row. I spoke to the tourism group yesterday. Incredible. We're the, you know, ranked fifth in the country for overnight room nights because we opened up our tourism economy came back we just announced over a week ago had a record year for film uh so you know i'm not too worried about people leaving georgia and going to new New jersey or california in fact i think people are leaving those states coming here because of our policies so that was a 39 second answer but the part that democrats have seized upon was about the two second clip where he says i'm not too worried because <laughs> already after i tweeted a section of that answer already democrats are attacking kemp for saying he's not worried he's not too worried about the threat of businesses leaving of course you heard the whole answer where he's saying that he feels in the long run that more businesses will come to Georgia because of its tax policies. But look, this is not a debate that will get easily resolved. <laughs> you know, this this is part of a, it takes years, years to recruit some of these big businesses and years for many of them to move. I and mean, when we saw with Rivian and with the Hyundai plan, this is 
you know, getting giant deals like that is the product of years and years of effort behind the scenes. But at the same time, Stacey Abrams is tapping into this concern that she talked about in an interview with me just a few days ago, that the state's Republican policies could end up dinging the state's business reputation in the long run. Yeah. And she's got a tight rope to walk because on the one hand, it completely makes sense why on the campaign trail you want to warn about what the world could look like if your opponent gets reelected and how much better the world will look if you're elected instead. But you don't ultimately want to do anything to to hurt your odds. You don't want to overstep. You don't want this to become like a a fulfilling prophecy or, or anything like that. So she's got to be careful here. It's also worth noting just kind of the different factors that go into companies leaving or, or coming to a state. And once you make those decisions, Greg, you talked about how these deals are years in the making and how there's so much money and tax credits tied up in that. And then once you do move to a new state, you know, you you want your workers to get comfortable. And then once you move everyone's families, it's really hard to all of a sudden say, hey, just kidding, we're picking up and moving the company again. So there's so many factors that go into this beyond even tax credits or or kind of political policies, right? We're talking about mm-hmm. infrastructure. We're talking about labor laws, issues that are so much more complex than just- Workforce kind of, development. Exactly, exactly. So I, I think it's something where folks want to give this nice 30-second answer that works well for a political ad, but the world is just much more complex than that. And, and these decisions that go into whether to move a business somewhere or to keep it somewhere, it's way more- complex than just kind of one factor. It's a very good point. Let's shift quickly to a development in the Senate race. Herschel Walker accepts a debate against Raphael Warnock, or does he? Let's listen. I have accepted a a debate in Savannah, Georgia, in his backyard, that we can debate October the 14th in front of a crowd that it'll be his people because we're in his backyard and this debate is going to be about the people. It's not about some political party. It's not about the press, but the people need to see the differences between Senator Warnock and Herschel Walker. Let's set the stage. Senator Warnock months ago agreed to three separate debates, one in Macon, one in Atlanta, and one in Savannah. So at first blush, it sure seemed like Herschel Walker was accepting that debate in Savannah. It would be hosted by WTOC. But I, I bugged the, the, that night. It was late at night on a Wednesday or Tuesday, Tuesday. And I bugged Herschel Walker's campaign. I said, is that WTOC debate or is this a yet to be a hashed out debate? And long story short, they said it was, it was, a, it was a fourth debate. It was one that would be hosted by WSAV down in Savannah and Nexstar. So this is not Herschel Walker formally accepting a debate, essentially. It is he's willing to debate, to participate in debate. But Raphael Warnock's campaign is still saying, hey, we put three debates on the table. This isn't one of them. We're going to stick with our three debates. Meanwhile, Herschel Walker says this is the only debate <laughs> that he wants to participate in. He's also said something about a Lincoln Douglas discussion, but this is the only debate. So really what we're down to and I, look, I've been skeptical the whole time tomorrow. I've never thought that the two would debate. But really what it seems to come down to right now is A, does Raphael Warnock want to get on stage badly enough with Herschel Walker that he's willing to you know, swallow his misgivings about the whole affair and just say, sure, we'll go to the WSAV event down in Savannah on October 14th? And even if he does, does Herschel Walker move the goalposts yet again and say, find some technicality, find some issues, find some reason why he wouldn't debate, because we've seen that 
over and over again from Herschel Walker. He said, I'm willing to debate Raphael Warnock any place, anytime, you name it. But then when you get down to the finer print, he's saying that he doesn't want to debate with media elite and he doesn't want to do a debate with the Atlanta Press Club and he doesn't want to do a debate on this or that term. So it's been a lot harder to kind of pin him to the specifics. And even though we have a date and a willing host, we still don't have an agreement struck on the debates. We might never see the two men on the same debate stage. There's going to have to be an awkward moment for somebody, right? Either Warnock is going to have to kind of step down and say like, all right, fine, Herschel Walker, I'll go and and meet you at your debate. Or Herschel Walker, who just announced (laughs) this one debate, is going to have to kind of change his mind. It it feels a little bit like (laughs) kind of grade school age siblings kind of debating over how you, you know, the word choices of one another and like, well, I didn't say that. No, I said that. But so is is somebody going to kind of stand down and say like, okay, fine, I'll, I'll go do your thing. And you're absolutely right, Greg. How much does Senator Warnock want to debate Herschel Walker? Because it's looking like he would probably do pretty well in these debates. He is a reverend who speaks weekly to his congregation. He's a U.S. senator who's well-versed in how to give speeches on the Senate floor. Herschel Walker, of course, has had a string of gaffes on the campaign trail. He does not seem to necessarily be the best speaker when it comes to laying out policy ideas. So on its face, you would think that Raphael Warnock would want to debate Herschel Walker because he would come out of this thing looking pretty darn good. So does he kind of stand down agree to the terms? Or does Herschel Walker, you know, if he does that, does does Herschel Walker find a way to kind of move the goalposts? But remember, he's been under a ton of pressure to agree to a debate. He refused to debate any of his primary rivals, saying he was only open and kind of ready to debate Senator Warnock. Well, now here's his chance. Is he going to be a man of his word or is he going to find an excuse and walk away? And that's why this is not just a sideshow, in a sense. I've been as reluctant as anyone to write stories about this debate on debates because it just seems like a very niche issue that even insiders, you know, aren't that enamored of. But at the same time, it's a very important part of the campaign because it goes directly to Senator Warnock's argument against Herschel Walker, which is his argument is that Herschel Walker is not ready for the main stage. He's not ready for the national spotlight. He's not ready to be a a senator representing Georgia. And his argument is that if he won't even debate, then that just proves that he's not ready. So that is why we're paying more attention than usual to it. I guess we've been seeing over the last couple of years less and less of an emphasis on debates. I mean, part of this, you could say, is because of the rise of social media. You know, folks are are less likely to tune into debates in general. I think it's just become a less kind of expected part of campaigns. But in the last couple of years in Georgia, you've seen a lot of candidates kind of walk away from them to varying degrees of success, right? We saw then-Secretary of State Kemp in 2018 cancel a debate appearance with Stacey Abrams because Donald Trump had scheduled a rally for him or scheduled a rally in Georgia that the governor attended and, you know, benefited from. Um, and he did well. He he won the race. So I guess it didn't hurt him. At the same time, in 2020, we saw David Perdue refuse to go to a debate with John Ossoff, his Democratic opponent. And Ossoff had a bunch of viral moments where he kind of lectured an empty podium and called David Perdue a crook. And, and that was a moment that really took off and helped John Ossoff's campaign. On the national level, of course, we saw with Donald Trump and Joe Biden 
I think every single debate get canceled. Maybe they had one. And now there's been all sorts of talks about what presidential debates will look like in 2024 and the RNC kind of losing faith in the Commission for Presidential Debates and kind of the way that things run right now. So I think in general, you're just seeing kind of a cultural shift with these different candidates not wanting to do this kind of very traditional hallmark of the American campaign trail. You're exactly right. And uh, we'll see how that shakes out. Certainly one of my go-tos is that we talk a lot more about the candidates when they don't debate than when they do. And so it always just does seem like you lose when you don't debate. We remember the candidates who don't debate a lot more than when if you had a, you know, if you had an average mediocre appearance. We all remember David Perdue not showing up. We also remember the, the Warnock-Leffler debate for sure. Uh, but to, to many people, that image of John Ossoff on a stage without David Perdue is the iconic image of that 2020 December runoff debate hosted by Atlanta Press Club. Okay, let's shift topics because we want to now do our favorite segment of the show, the listener mailbag. And you, you, yes, our loyal listeners, you can join our listener mailbag by simply calling the Politically Georgia podcast hotline at any time. Because our producer, Shaney B, he is staffing it at all hours, 24-7, and with a crew of very dedicated, determined interns. They're just doing a tremendous job for us. You can leave a question. Shaney will listen to it almost immediately, and sometimes only sparingly he'll mock it. And we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 770-810-5297. That's 770-810-5297. And Shaney, who do we got for today? Let's start with a UGA student. Didn't leave his name, but here's his question. Hey, I'm currently driving from Richmond Hill, Georgia, up to Athens, Georgia, for the start of my senior year at UGA, um, recent listener of the podcast. And I'm curious. So currently we see both Senator Warnock and Governor Kemp up in the polls, and we know that there's going to be a significant number of split-ticket voters in the fall who vote for both Warnock and Kemp, how will this affect the lieutenant governor's race? I currently haven't seen that much polling on how Burt Jones versus Charlie Bailey is going to play out. I know that Burt Jones is, is up a couple points in Charlie Bailey, but I'm curious whether or not y'all think that his role in the fake elector scandal, um, especially if prosecutors do try and press charge later this year, um, whether that will have an effect on the race and if we could potentially see a Kemp Bailey victory. Thank you. That's a great question, unnamed student. I'll go first. Our poll showed Burt Jones with a five-point advantage. Usually, the LG race goes the same way as the governor race in Georgia. You know, usually, frankly, usually we have very little split ticket. Um, Herschel Walker's candidacy stands out. and But even as November nears, I expect the split ticket to kind of narrow, that, that trend to narrow. At the same time, we have a very unique race for lieutenant governor with a target letter you know, saying that Burt Jones could face criminal charges for being involved in that fake elector plot. And that is basically, Charlie Bailey has a number of arguments, but that is at the center of his campaign that, that his opponent is, in his words, unpatriotic, un-American, and is, is willing to attack the foundations of our democracy by buying into Donald Trump's election fraud lies. Tomorrow, I don't know what you think about that, but I do know that right now, at least, Burt Jones in our poll and in most other polls I've seen has a, you know, a single digit but steady lead of three, four, five points. Well, a, a couple points, and it is a great question and one I've been wondering myself. So great question. A couple points to make. The first is 
let's talk about why Charlie Bailey was selected to run for the LG's race. Remember, he was running for attorney general. There was going to be a primary with him versus Jen Jordan. And party leaders kind of convinced him to move into the LG's race. Not only did that clear the way for Jen Jordan, but I think they saw a value in having a former prosecutor at the top of the ticket, a more law and order voice who could help appeal to a broader swath of voters who might not be as progressive as a Stacey Abrams. And so perhaps that can appeal to a split ticket voter. I'm not really sure. As for Burt Jones and the target letter that was sent to him by the Fulton DA's office. That's kind of my my day job these days. I've been covering that investigation. Yeah. And, you know, he had a successful motion that he filed in court, basically disqualifying Fonnie Willis and the Fulton DA's office from investigating him from that portion of the investigation. Because in June, during the Democratic primary runoff, the Fulton DA, Fonnie Willis, held a fundraiser for Charlie Bailey, who once worked with her in the prosecutor's office. You know, he argued it was a conflict of interest and that the DA's office could not make a fair judgment about him and whether he should be um, charged or investigated, anything like that. And a Fulton judge agreed with him and basically plucked the matter out of the Fulton DA's hands. And they can continue their investigation. They can look into the other 15 Republican electors. But what they cannot do is investigate Burt Jones. Eventually, another DA's office will be appointed to look into the matter. They'll ultimately be the ones who decide whether he should be charged with a crime, whether he should be considered a target of the investigation. But the head of the organization that will eventually appoint a replacement DA's office said that he's not really in a hurry to appoint anybody. And I think a lot of folks think that Burt Jones won't really have to worry about this, at least through this election season. And so that takes away a huge kind of argument. It takes a huge argument away from from Charlie Bailey. And Burt Jones can say, hey, a nonpartisan judge said that, that Fannie Willis wasn't doing the right thing, that she was conflicted here. And I think it gives him a lot of ammunition going forward. So maybe that'll ultimately help Burt Jones at the end of the day. We will soon find out. Janie B., I think we have a second caller. We have a special treat. We have one more. And it's interesting how the fascination with Georgia politics resonates far beyond Georgia. This is Shiloh with a question. He's in Colorado. I'm curious. If Governor Kemp wins this go around, do you guys think he's going to run for president? Because I'm looking at a very conservative Republican who was able to set himself up as notably, you know, beating Trump in the form of David Perdue without going, you know, bulwark style, anti-Trumpist, et cetera. And to me, it just, it, it looks like a very compelling sort of a Republican who might be able to unite the tribes. I mean, this is coming from a dyed in the wool lifelong Democrat, but I, I don't know as much about Georgia politics as you guys do, so I'd be very interested to find out. Thanks so much. Shiloh, you came to the right place. <laughs> you know, um, uh, I love the question. I wrote a story earlier this week saying essentially that the Republican Civil War in 2022 in Georgia is over and Brian Kemp is the winner because not just did he humiliate David Perdue, and not just did the Donald Trump-backed challengers all go down in flames, except for Burt Jones and Herschel Walker, which who were kind of unique cases, but also 
the AJC poll and every other poll we've seen shows that Brian Kemp has a 90% plus support within the GOP. So there's not a significant number of Republicans who are unwilling to back Brian Kemp right now and, and stay neutral or, or even vote Democratic. And that is something we are seeing, by the way, in the Senate race with 4% of Kemp supporters in the AJC poll saying that they're going to vote for Raphael Warnock. So after I wrote that story, a number of conservative national pundits started floating Brian Kemp's name for president, you know, saying, I can't believe this guy should be in the, in the, at least in the conversation in 2024. This is not what Brian Kemp wants to talk about. This is not what he wants to hear. And, you know, my gut tells me he has no interest, not only in 2024, but any other White House run. He's the one who's mocking Stacey Abrams for wanting to run for president. So the last thing he wants is for people to be saying that he could run for president in 2024. But at the same time, he is this rare Republican who has defied Donald Trump in a big stage, right? Georgia is the premier battleground state in the nation. He defied Donald Trump. He hasn't said bad things about him, but he still defied him, rejected his attempts to overturn Georgia's election, was clearly on Donald Trump's bad side, was at the top of his revenge list. And he won. He won his primary. He's ahead in the polls in November. We don't know what will happen, but he's ahead in the polls right now. So yeah, he's going to have, if he does end up winning, he's going to have a, a quite a bigger spotlight on him. He'll have more clout. He'll have a longer fundraising list. And he'll be more of a national player should he want to do that. I don't have anything to add. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there you go. That is Tamar saying that he's going to run in 2024. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> Well, Tamar, thank you so much for joining us and, and being a very, very able fill-in for Patricia Murphy, who is back from vacation in a couple of days. And Tamar gets to go back to her very fun beat covering everything, not just the grand jury investigation, but Tamar, you seem to always <laughs> show up in every single story that's going on in a very good way. Oh, well, thanks for having me. And I'm excited to get to do this next time to see where in the world, where in Georgia you are sitting in your car with your podcast mic, probably looking really weird to everyone walking by. Oh, I'm I'm sure I'm in you know, a lot of people walk by giving me second glances, but no one's called the cops on me yet. So that that is good. Thanks for spending some time with us on Politically Georgia. You can count on new episodes of the podcast to come out every Wednesday and every Friday or whenever news breaks. We will see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologeticallyATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,